There's nothing quite like just being on the court, playing beach volleyball, totally in sync with my body, totally in sync with my partner on the court, and knowing that, you know, we have to work together to achieve this common goal, and it's just me and her. Hello, and welcome to the Well You Mental Training Podcast. My name is Ami Strutton-Dolnoff, and I'll be your host today. We're excited to have Camilla Tan on the show. Camilla is a professional beach volleyball player and played beach volleyball at UCLA, where she excelled to become an All-American. Currently, she plays for Platform 1440. And along with being a competitive athlete, Camilla is enrolled in a master's program at UCLA, where she is pursuing a degree in public health and administration. Hello, Camilla. How are you doing? Hi, Ami. I'm great. How are you? I am great. Uh, super excited to have you and uh, really, really excited to learn your story and uh, to dive in. So, I'm super um, excited to be here. Thank you so much for willing to listen to my story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, and you have a great story, too. So we're excited. Um, you know, I wonder if we could just go back a little bit and you can take us back to the beginning of sports for you specifically and and then kind of we can go forward from there and like where did it all started, you know, kind of the lead, lead up. Sure. Um, so I grew up in San Diego, California, and honestly, I tried to play almost every sport possible when I was younger. Um, so I played everything from water polo to tennis to volleyball to basketball. I swam and I was super active kid, so I just loved trying absolutely anything and everything. And then um, when I started playing beach volleyball, I was around 15 and a half, 16, and I absolutely fell in love with the sport and just loved the entire atmosphere and the community of it. Um, what better sport to play, you know, outside on the beach and mm -hmm. just hanging out, relaxing, having a good time and... I decided that if I could pursue it in college, if I could pursue it professionally, that's what I wanted to do. So that's a little background. Fantastic. And, you know, when we're talking about sports, sometimes we all recall a certain moment. Was there any moment in particular that stands out for you when you're like, wow, beach volleyball is my thing. Like, that's my love. Was there, you remember like a, a moment or a time that, that kind of hit you? Um, that's a great question. I don't think that there was ever just one moment where I thought, wow, beach volleyball is really my thing. But there's nothing quite like just being on the court, playing beach volleyball, totally in sync with my body, totally in sync with my partner on the court, and knowing that, you know, we have to work together to achieve this common goal, and it's just me and her. And we're in the flow together and figuring things out together. And um, it's just two people on the court, right? So it's all on us. And I think I fell in love with just the challenge of having just myself and one other person to cover an entire court. Also coupled with the fact that I'm outside, I'm right next to the ocean. You know, no matter whether I win or lose, I have the ocean right there. Um, to cool off in and just the entire atmosphere of it is what I fell in love with. Yeah. Who, who, who couldn't, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so take us forward a little bit. So you got really, um, it kind of hit you, took you over beach volleyball and then you started to get more and more competitive with it. 
um, you ultimately ended up playing in college. Can you, can you kind of take us from there? Like what happened from that point? So, yeah, as you mentioned, I, I got pretty competitive in beach volleyball in high school. I actually had um, some great opportunities to play for USA Volleyball. And they had this um, youth developmental program. It was the age groups, I think, were under 17, under 19, under 21, under 23. And I think I think I competed. I think I started competing in under 17 was the first age group that I competed in. So I was exposed to elite level beach volleyball from that young age as well through USA Volleyball. And that was pretty cool. Um, that helped plug me into some of the recruiting realm for beach volleyball in college because um, as I was getting close to graduating high school, beach volleyball was just starting to be a brand new sport in college. So I actually started off getting recruited by USC, Florida State, um, Georgia State University, and those were all kind of the big name schools that just had started um, beach volleyball programs. But because of financial reasons, I actually chose to stay in San Diego and go to UC San Diego and play indoor with the hope that they would start a beach volleyball program. Mm -hmm. However, that didn't happen while I was playing indoor at UCSD. So I ended up competing there for two seasons of indoor. Then I heard that UCLA was starting a beach volleyball program. So I took the opportunity, immediately asked my coach at UC San Diego for a release, and then contacted the head coach at UCLA for beach volleyball, which happened to be Stein Metzger. Um, and he came out to one beach volleyball tournament, watched me pepper for a little bit, and said, yep, you're on the team. You're going to be the first beach volleyball athlete at UCLA. <laughs> wow. I was like, sweet. <laughs> what a good feeling. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So you are in UCLA and you're making your way through um, collegiate beach volleyball um, while managing, you know, your academic rigor, right? It's, it's student athletes is, is a challenge. Um, when did you first start noticing like the, the, the challenges ahead of you and, and what happened from that point? So there was actually, there were, very many challenges um, that I faced transferring to UCLA and being the first beach volleyball athlete at UCLA. So as cool as it is to start a program from the ground up, um, it was just myself and one other girl who was a fifth year at UCLA. She had played indoor and she was staying at UCLA to complete her degree and play one season of beach. So it was just her and I that were at practices at UCLA. We only had one beach volleyball court and it wasn't very deep. So we couldn't even dive on the court while we were practicing. And wow. all of our other practices, we had the rest of the indoor girls to fill out the rest of the team while we were in season. Um, all of our other practices, we actually had to drive to Santa Monica, um, take a time to be an hour or so on the road and then get set up at the beach, practice there, and then come back to campus for classes. So it was quite the ordeal just to have a practice at UCLA. Um, 
and it was a little bit disorganized and a little bit like unpredictable sometimes. Um, so as an athlete who really wants to thrive off of structure and wants to thrive off of certainty and wants to have a lot of guidance coming into a brand new school, you know, I didn't really know very many people. I didn't feel like I was super integrated into the community. Um, I was kind of floundering about it almost seemed on my own. Um, I didn't really have my own team. I was just kind of like this beach volleyball athlete on the side, um, didn't, you know, I, I wasn't practicing with the indoor girls on a daily basis, so I didn't um, have them as a solid community. I felt really on my own, um, and that caused a lot of mental struggles for me as an athlete, just trying to figure out my own way, and I didn't really know how to utilize my own support systems properly, if that makes sense. Yeah, almost a sense of, like, isolation. A little bit, yeah. Um I definitely felt lonely when I came in and I think all the uncertainty, all the um, not knowing exactly where I fit as this first beach volleyball athlete that was super excited to come into this brand new program, but the program had no structure. So I didn't know what I was getting myself into and um trying to figure it out on my own and trying to understand where I was, how I was going to move forward. There was just a lot of uncertainty and I didn't, you know, in my young state of mind, didn't really know how to deal with that on my own. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of, a lot of things to be faced at a young age without, you know, a lot of guidance on that. Um, so as you're going through with that, what was the manifestation of all of those, you know, um, struggles? I know you're passionate about uh, speaking on, disordered eating and you yourself had developed an eating disorder um, in school. Definitely. So um, the way that my stress all manifested itself eventually, um, I had, as I grew up, I had struggled a lot with anxiety and depression and sports was really my outlet for that. I used sports. I enjoyed the endorphins of being active. I found community in sports. And so sports was the way that I knew how to combat those um, feelings of negativity that I had inside. Mm. Um, and so I definitely turned to my sport of beach volleyball when I felt isolated, when I felt lonely. However, um, being at UCLA, I kind of, I started to put a lot of pressure on myself. I'm at this top tier university. There's um, pressure in academics. There's pressure in athletics. I want to be the best I can possibly be. And I started to notice that a lot of the athletes around me and a lot of the high level, um, yeah, the high level athletes and the diet culture in the community of Los Angeles there was a huge focus on food, what you were eating, how much you were eating, uh, what are the right types of foods to fuel proper performance? What are the right types of foods to have a healthy body or an aesthetically pleasing look? So being in this environment that was sort of hyper-focused on food, I really started to focus on what I was eating. Mm. And um, 
it started out as an innocent attempt to control my diet in order to increase my performance on the court. I just wanted to be the healthiest athlete that I possibly could be. Um, However, that turned into restriction over time. Mm. I was exposed to somebody who was vegan and I noticed how she ate her food and I thought, oh, maybe I should try that. Um, And then I was exposed to various diets as I started to kind of like look more into I started to look into how nutrition worked and I noticed a lot of people were restrictive. So I thought I might try that. And then I started to lose weight when I cut out certain food groups and then I got a lot of compliments and then I started to perpetuate those behaviors because I started to feel valued for the way that my body looked. Mm. And then all of a sudden I was, cutting out carbs, cutting out fats. It happened really quickly. And I was praised for how I was, how my body looked. So it turned into a full-blown eating disorder rather quickly. As I hear you, I mean, that's just so, uh, just, it's just so much, you know, just, just in hearing it. And it almost feels like it happened, as you say, so fast. Did it, did it feel like it was, it happened, you know, before you knew it, it was already happening? Yeah, um, honestly, as I look back and look back at my experience with all of it, it started out as an innocent attempt to want to be healthier. Because before the restriction, before the periods of restriction, I had struggled with binge eating, in which I had this emotional internal void inside of me because I felt lonely, because I felt isolated. And I would go to the dining hall or whatever was available to me and just binge eat cookies, ice cream, candy, um, whatever sweets I could get my hands on until I felt so full and so guilty for that behavior. Mm. So the restriction for me was a way of combating those binge behaviors because those binge behaviors felt so terrible to me that I wanted to do everything in my power to get rid of those. And so Mm. the restriction was almost a way of ensuring that I didn't do that again. Um, So my disordered eating has been on a spectrum from Mm. going from binge eating to restriction and over exercise. And it's really interesting to me how those behaviors changed given what I was feeling throughout my experience in my sport as well. So it's somewhat cyclical. It can go in different directions at, at different times, depending on what's happening. Absolutely. Okay. It's definitely cyclical. And often um, when one behavior is addressed or we figure out how to change one behavior, another eating disordered behavior can pop up. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So how did you learn? I mean, ultimately this came to a head. And, you know, you're obviously very proficient and you have a great, great awareness and understanding of what's what disordered eating is. How did you become such a, an expert in, in knowing um, all of this and, and, and where did it come to a head? So I actually <laughs> throughout my time at UCLA, um, 
I was flagged for an eating disorder at UCLA when they saw that I had lost a bunch of weight and some of the internal processes in my body had shut down and I became flagged physically for an eating disorder and I was put on a meal plan and I was monitored by a treatment team at UCLA while I was competing in my sport. I was not allowed to play my sport if I continued to lose any weight. So I either had to maintain or gain in order to continue playing my sport. Um, And at that time, that was the biggest motivator for me to at least attempt recovery was to continue playing my sport. Um, However, it all came to a head actually when I graduated from UCLA. I entered this master's program in public health. I still am. I entered it because I am very passionate about mental health advocacy and awareness. And I still am today. And I am going to use my degree to further my um, goals about spreading awareness on mental health issues and creating community supports. Um, However, my eating disorder came to a head when I entered this graduate program. And I kind of put my eating disorder to the side in my mind a little bit. I, I said, I said to myself that, oh, it wasn't really that big of a problem. And, you know, I'll deal with it after I get through graduate school. However, to deal with the stress of graduate school and deal with the stress of um, kind of losing my identity in the sport, you know, I was no longer a student athlete. My eating disorder actually got worse. Mm. And I started restricting more. I started over-exercising more because those were the areas of my life that I felt in control of. Wow. So my eating disorder became way worse. And um, throughout the course of a summer internship, I felt very stressed. Once again, I felt a little bit isolated and lonely. And my eating disorder behaviors perpetuated themselves so badly that I almost died because my internal processes were all shutting down. My heart was beating very weakly because it didn't have enough energy to beat. Um, I could barely digest any food. And one day when I was playing beach volleyball, um, I literally felt like I was going to die. My Mm. heart was beating super slowly. I was blacking out. I was seeing stars. Um, I was dizzy and the thing that scared me the most when I was playing that day is that um, I didn't stop. Mm. I kept playing. I kept playing because my eating disorder had convinced me that that was the only thing that I knew how to do right was play volleyball. And um, if I died right there, that I would be happy. Wow. So it's like this joy and passion you started with as a kid was almost overcome by the power of this uh, eating disorder, which was kind of cannibalizing your joy or love almost. Yeah, definitely. Um, in one of my blog posts, actually, I, I said something to the effect of that the sport that had brought me the most passion and joy in life had become a weapon for my eating disorder for my own destruction. Mm. Wow, that's powerful. That's yeah. so powerful. It, and, and I recall you saying in another conversation how it was interesting. And, and as an athlete, you, you know, you're, 
you're in the midst of, uh, of a health crisis, but yet you're performing, you know, um, you were, you were getting results and, and what a confusing time because I'm, I'm making my marks, I'm hitting my results, but at the same time, my health is, is at dire, um, and I'm, I'm at risk. Yeah. Um, terribly confusing as an athlete. Because on the one hand, my performance initially increased with weight loss. So I got quicker on the court and I was able to get some more balls and I was able to jump a little bit higher. I felt lighter um, and more confident. And so I started to get results on the court and I started to get recognized for those results. Um, the year at UCLA, when I would consider myself to have been sickest in my eating disorder, um, with my behaviors and when the thoughts were most rampant in my mind, I got the most honors from PAC 12, from AVCA, from Dig Magazine. It's like the accolades were just rolling in and I was sick and lost in my eating disorder And so it was totally backwards. My eating disorder had me hooked and convinced that because of the way I was eating, that's why I was performing. It's so, yeah, it's so scary to, to kind of hear that in a way, because this is happening to other athletes, I'm sure, who have stuff going on behind the scenes and we don't see it. And, and perhaps they're getting rewarded they're getting their best results. They're getting their honors. And it's, it, it, it's so confusing and and inside and behind the scenes, they're, they're hurting. Totally. Um, so, so coming to today, as we move forward a little bit, um, you know, you're here, you know, you're competing, you're here. Um, is there, is there a particular experience that has made you the athlete you are today? Cause you're standing here, you're, you're competing, you're still in school. Like, can you talk on that? <laughs> um, so I guess on the topic of resilience, um, there's no, I don't think there's any one experience that makes me the athlete that I am today, per se. Um, honestly, that one day on the beach that I mentioned earlier when I was, you know, I was just playing, I was with my close friends. I was with four people that I really, or three other people that I really cared about that day. And on the one hand, I felt so much joy playing with them. But on the other hand, I felt so much fear because I felt like I was going to die. Wow. So I know how that feels. And not only that, like my body was in such a compromised state that I actually almost did die. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't just all in my head in that moment. Um, On the one hand, I know how that feels to be so compromised and still honestly by some miracle be able to perform in my sport and on the other hand now coming out on the other side of that I know how it feels to compete in freedom without my eating disorder in the picture with pure joy just focused on volleyball you know feeling everything all the pressures of the sport but also all the joys that come with it um And I think the dichotomy of knowing what it feels like to be almost dead in my sport and then knowing what it feels like to feel so alive in my sport, um, I think that's what makes me the athlete that I am today. 
um, and just how I view sports and life, knowing that there's all different sides of the spectrum, and I felt both, um, and I think that there's more in the future that I still can achieve. So, so you mentioned you mentioned the word resilience, um, and as you've gone through all of this, what ways does resilience help you? I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's things off the court and maybe on the court in volleyball as an athlete. Is there specific things that that makes you more resilient? Do you feel like you have more resilience from your experience and what what you are going through today, even? Um, yeah, I do, I do think I have more resilience today, absolutely, given what I have gone through. Um, because <laughs> I think sometimes it's easy when you're an athlete to look at your opponent and you have your physical opponent there and you say, I have to beat you. You know, my goal in this match, in this competition is to beat that opponent. However, the opponent that I had to beat in my eating disorder was inside my own head, Mm. inside my own body. And that was scary for me. I had to separate myself from my eating disorder, find that, you know, I was Camila without my eating disorder and kind of um, compartmentalize that part of me as an opponent. Um, and that really, that developed a lot of resilience. Um, and I know, that, honestly, I, I think that if I can, if I can beat that opponent, um, I can face anything else that comes my way. It, it, as you were saying that it struck me exactly as you, as you said it, um, you know, the, the ability to, to battle and overcome like a life and death situation, um, and you have that kind of in, in you, when you look across the net at, at another team or another court, you know, you know you are beating or have beaten such a, such a deep, hard thing that this maybe makes it even a little bit easier almost. Like, okay, if I can beat this, if I can like step into this and, 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 and face my greatest kind of demon or fear, I can beat you. Is that somewhat of a thought in your head as you're on the board at times? Um, you know, that's a great question. I honestly haven't really tapped into that mm-hmm. a lot. But I think that, you know, moving forward, I probably should. Because it is a confidence booster um, looking back at how far I've come and the steps I've taken to accomplish where I am today, you know, like coming back from a life or death situation and then re-entering my sport without using eating disorder behaviors has, you know, been quite the feat and something that I'm really proud of. So I should definitely take that onto the court and definitely, you know, give myself that little boost when I need it. Hundred percent. Here you are today. You're you're competing uh, on the tour. You're you're playing for platform fourteen forty, and it's like you're right back at it. Um, did you think you would be here? Um, <laughs> it's always been a goal of mine 
to as soon as the platform 1440 developmental team was announced I had a goal to compete in it I wanted to be a part of the program um so when I had to essentially relinquish my sport in order to enter treatment for my eating disorder I had actually made the team to be a part of platform 1440 and I had to give that up in order to just heal and Mm. save my life Mm. essentially um so being able to come back, I really, during treatment, I really had to take a deep dive and understand, was it possible for me to re-enter my sport? Was it a good decision? Would I be thrown into relapse if I re-entered my sport again? Would I be able to handle the environmental pressures? And so I really had to experiment with that while I was in treatment and coming out of it. I didn't know if I wanted to go into competition again but I decided to do so I also surrounded myself with support so I'm still in therapy I still see a dietitian I'm not in super intensive treatment but I see a therapist and a dietitian once a week Um, I'm very open with my friends and my family about how I'm doing with my eating disorder if I'm struggling I'll call a friend and say hey you know like I don't want to eat dinner right now, but I know that I should. Do you want to go grab dinner with me? Mm. And utilizing those supports in my life has absolutely enabled me to move forward. I learned a lot of skills in treatment, and I use them every single day. It needs to be a practice every single Mm -hmm. day. Otherwise, I will go back into into relapse, and I know that. You know, and, and, and as you're saying that, it goes, takes us back to what you were saying in the, in the onset of how this all started is, you know, at times maybe a self of isolationism and, and not having the, the supports that you needed uh, at the time. And full circle, you're talking about your ability to overcome and get back and step back into playing volleyball at a high level. You surrounded yourself by a, a great deal of very powerful support systems and so as you say this, um, is your resilience tied to more than just yourself? I mean, it, would you owe it to uh, surrounding yourself by a network? Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Obviously, I do have to credit myself for the hard work that I've put in. For sure. Because understanding how my own past traumas contributed to the deeper parts of my eating disorder and those things in my life that I was trying to control, um, that can only be done on a personal level. However, being able to surround myself by a supportive community, finding people who are just willing to listen and validate what I've gone through, seeking out mentors in the community and stories, other stories that people had of, you know, hope, either through mental illness or through an eating disorder or through something else that they've been able to overcome. I educated myself on my condition. I looked up all the science. Um, Being able to surround myself with every type of support possible that I could in my power has absolutely enabled me to succeed. 
I would not have been able to do it on my own. Wow. It's very impressive. What, what message then would you give other individuals going through what you experience? Um, what would you say? What, what, what's, if you kind of had to sharpen it down to something that really is just you want people to know? Um, well, going back to the idea of community, surround yourself with as many supports as possible. I can't reiterate that enough. Um, seeking professional help is totally okay. It's totally okay. In fact, I think it's necessary when you're dealing with a mental illness, a mental health issue, um, even concerns that can seem trivial can blow out of proportion if not addressed. So it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to take a break if you need to. Life, the world will still turn. Life will resume <laughs> when you're ready to get back to it. And it's totally okay for you to take a break to work on yourself and work on what you're struggling with and just let that go in order for you and heal in order for you to move forward and come back to the community as a better person. Um, also, I would say you're not alone. Eating disorders and um, mental health issues are super prevalent in the world today. There's a lot of pressure in the world today. And a lot more people are going through um, something difficult as well than you might think. Mm. So, um, and then I also would reiterate, if anybody else is going through eating disorder recovery right now, um, just trust the process and trust what the experts are telling you because your body often has to heal in order for your mind to settle down. I like that. And like that, that seems really backwards. Because people will tell you, oh, your body will get right if your mind gets right mm. first. But in eating disorder recovery, often your body has to get right first. Wow. And that's yeah. what happened to me. I think that's a really important statement you just made for, for everyone listening. And it's all different. It's all dependent on, on everybody's situation requires different you know, interventions and supports and needs. So Camilla, it's so great having you on the show. Um, and I know a lot of people would love to hear more. Um, where can people find you and, and reach out to you? Uh, you can find me in multiple places. So I actually have my own website and it's just under www.camillatan.com. And I spell my name K-A-M-I-L-A and my last name is Tan, T-A-N.com. And I also have an Instagram page, and that's under Chameleonaire, <laughs> um, where I post a lot about, you know, the mental processes that I'm often going through and how I use skills in my eating disorder recovery and in my athletics day to day. Um, I have a Facebook page just under Camila Tan. I also have a LinkedIn profile under Camila Tan. And um, if anyone's looking for resources about you know, how to find supports for eating disorders. The National Eating Disorders Association online has a ton of resources there. And also, um, I was a patient at the UCSD Eating Disorders Center for Treatment and Research in San Diego. 
and they just have phenomenal teams there. So um, I would give a look into that as well. That's great. Perfect. Um, so go ahead and reach out. We'll, we'll also post your, your links um, on the platform. Um, so again, thank you so much, Camila. And we look forward to following you more in your career and with beach volleyball and everything you're doing. So grateful. Thanks so much. Um, I also just wanted to say, I'm happy to do public speaking engagements for, you know, athletes, coaches. Um, once I get some educational materials built out, I'm happy to share those as well. So um, would love to come and speak to any teams or um, athletic departments that think my story would be of value to their athletes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, counseling centers, health centers. Absolutely. Um, definitely be a valued resource uh, in helping break down walls, get information, educate. Yeah, huge, huge, um, huge value there. So um, thank you so much. Thank right. you so much for having me. So this is Brian Alexander and Ami Stratton Belnoff your mental coaches and at the end of each great athlete story that you just heard we're going to add our takeaways and mental coach debrief and transitioning into that debrief right now Ami you know here we have an amazing athlete multi-sport athlete growing up um, she sounds so brave and her voice even even comes across as very bright and cheery having gone through so much struggle through her athletic journey I just wonder you know with food being such a big piece of athletes lives and daily schedules how do you think you found her her story as you interviewed her well it was just uh the thing that jumps off the table right away is just the idea and concept of vulnerability you know because here's an athlete you know that's young at an established school um going through such you know such significant troubles and, and and when the story led to you know talking about being on her deathbed it just struck me like it hits your heart hard um and and just the way she's so open with her story um i think has a lot to do with her resiliency and uh, ability to kind of continue on in the sport you know um and so i think that was a big piece that kind of st stuck in my head is the openness of of struggles and um yeah so that hit me hard i don't know um what you think about that in terms of looking at the broader spectrum of sports and all these different issues in terms of like people what people are going through you know off the court that we don't get to see i mean this was a great example of an inside story uh, of a athlete struggling on so many levels and then coming full circle yeah, I agree. I heard that multiple times. She even shared she had battled with different mental health challenges such as anxiety, depression, and then to share that near-death experience out on the court was very, very emotional and and you know, just being in that that moment she was in and deciding she needed to keep playing because that was a big piece of her self-identity. Um, it just it rings out to me the importance of athletes understanding that they're people first and athletes second and how they can become more resilient 
through having that core value set and understanding really who they are as they bring themselves onto the court or bring themselves into the venue where they're competing and training, it adds just a, a, a huge layer to how they can respond to different aspects of setbacks. And this is obviously an extreme, you know, a really uh, challenging case, but I, I feel for Camila and, and I'm sure there's so many other athletes out there being challenged just to uh, maintain weight or to learn how to eat, um, even transitioning out of sport. Um, their, their relationship with food is such a big piece of being an athlete and being a student. And um, uh, I think, you know, her optimistic attitude and her ability to lean on people through her challenges and through her struggles has largely shaped her approach to everything she does it seems like you know the interesting thing about Camila's story was that you know she's in a, a sport where there is you know the clothing is very revealing and the culture she was around exposed her to a lot of different ways of eating and diet culture she mentioned and and as she was talking, it, it was it was really just mind blowing how fast the eating disorder had just taken over everything, and it, it just snowballed so quickly. And um, all this was happening behind closed doors as she's competing at a high level, and and on top of that, she was starting to get results, which is which just seems so confusing to the whole whole matter because there's so many athletes out there that are. Uh, competing at a high level maybe there are they are having great games but behind closed doors and, and off the court there's a whole nother um, life that's happening and it was just amazing to hear her story because of her vulnerability and just letting us into that part of her life that was happening and and, and my hope for her story actually really is this this resiliency aspect in how um, the openness and the ability to to get support and, and be open and vulnerable about what you may be going through gives gives an athlete the chance of, of being more resilient or just overcoming that uh, as opposed to being behind closed doors and quiet on, on things that are really affecting you. Yes, totally agree. That's a great point. I think um, with any athlete out there who might be struggling to connect, might be feeling isolated or lonely, which is a big part of, of her story, being able to be open and being able to connect with others, even if you're very goal oriented and pushing yourself to the highest level, finding ways to connect and, and just find support from everybody else around you and your community and, or even just outside, you know, from back home. It's, it's so valuable as a coping skill and as a way to feel heard and feel um, and, and, and it can kind of help you also make more uh, informed decisions with multiple perspectives where it's just not you yourself and and just, you know, by yourself, too. It, the point also, too, I think a lot of people may question and wonder about is, is are people just born resilient? You know, do they just have that in their DNA? And to that, I... I wonder if, you know, does it really matter? Because her story, maybe she, maybe Camila does have a piece of her that just has a, a, a genetic resiliency to her. But, but it, it almost doesn't matter because she found a way to, to do tangible things to connect to overcoming. 
um, you know, there was definitely things, action things that she she did to to get herself back into a functional state to be, you know, competing today and to be in a grad program. And, and her eating disorder is not gone. Her anxiety and emotions and depressions around things are, are still active. Um, she just was able to put action things in place to cope. Um, so when that conversation comes up on, well, are people born this way and either you have it or you don't, I think her story shows us that you can build it um, and, and that, can, that can be put into place. Yes, definitely. It was amazing too for her to say, you know, I think sometimes in coaching or in different areas of performance, we think, oh, well, the mind, it starts with your mind and then your body follows. And in her case with an eating disorder, she was saying she couldn't get her mind right if her body wasn't right at a base level of functioning. I thought that was so interesting. And she wasn't, she wasn't able to use anything mentally that she had developed in terms of resilience if she hadn't actually just taken steps to get her body functioning at the level it needed to be functioning to keep working and growing that that was a perfect point brian and being in the mental coaching world and working with athletes we always think mind and so it just hit home when she like kind of just stopped me in my tracks and she was like i had to get my body right first you know i had to address tangible physical things with my body to get my mind right and we always kind of almost reverse it with mind first you know um but this yeah. is this is a great point because everybody's resiliency is unique to their own situation and problem and um so that was really really interesting to hear that and it, it sunk home for me and and the other piece was um love and joy she connected to love and joy of her sport and that moment uh, she was describing you remember uh she was on the beach with her friends and you know it just reconnected her to her her initial love and passion for the sport and i think i think maybe that was a internal thing that was happening where she really decided i'm gonna i'm gonna overcome this and i'm gonna get back to um playing in the way I was before I was hit by all of this uh, in, in my, in, you know, while she was playing. Definitely. Yeah. That's, that's huge for her love and passion just for her sport and just to enjoy life as a person. So yeah, I think that's a great point. Well, for everybody listening, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram to learn more about the well, you mental training app and, everything else we're doing here uh, with well you mental training uh, you can follow us at well you and that's w-e-l-l the letter u and then app and then also feel free to reach out with questions and comments of camilla's story and we'll connect you even to camilla if she'd want to answer any questions you have for her um, she shared her social media plugs too so reach out to her. I know there's a ton of different things to cover in this story and a ton of things to learn from. So please reach out, engage, and find ways to continue to train your own process and work on your own mental game. You know, the Well You app, we have a ton of programs, a ton of exercises and activities. And just like mental skills, um, 
are, are meant to be practiced, you know, the, the same way you practice physical skills every day, we got to get in there, do, you know, a minimum of few, of 10 to 15 minutes every day and, and just get after it. So um, thanks again for listening to the Well You Mental Training podcast. And we'll share a great athlete story next month. have a desire to be great in what you do and a keen interest in the mental aspects of performance, then you're in the right place. Well You Mental Training seeks to push the edge of the mental game through evidence-based practices and stories from athletes similar to the one you're listening to today. Your collaboration matters as part of this process, so please head over to iTunes and leave us a review with your honest feedback on the podcast. We'd love to hear what you have to say. If you are as excited about the mental training stories you're hearing as we are, please share this podcast with your friends, family, and teammates too. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WellUApp. That's W-E-L-L-U-A-P-P. And learn more about the work our mental coaches are doing through LinkedIn and Facebook.